All right, we are back. Let's talk a few obituaries, starting with Mark Rich. We, we talked about the response to his obit uh, a few weeks ago, but I was able to finally put my hands on the actual document here from The Economist, July 6th, which noted his passing on June 26th and called him the king of commodities. According to The Economist, Mark Rich obsessively scanned the globe to see crises coming, wars brewing, and shortages looming. He would then buy before anyone else would think to, and was the first there when countries began to look around for oil or zinc or nickel. It's noted that on the eve of the Korean War, as a junior trader at Phillip Brothers in New York, he created a market for mercury, which the army needed for batteries, and the price soared. In the late 1960s, he somehow anticipated the Arab oil export embargo and began to create a spot market for oil, which made him a very rich man. Also known to The Economist, uh, with a cat-like tread, Mr. Rich found his way around any political or moral obstacle. He sold, so, he sold Soviet oil to apartheid South Africa, despite a, despite a U.N. embargo, and between 79 and 94 made profits of around $2 billion there. He also sent Soviet and Venezuelan oil to Cuba in exchange for sugar, getting around America's ban on trade. Sometime in the early 80s, he violated America's domestic oil price controls by relabeling Texas crude from oil fields as newfound and at that point jacked up the price by 400%. Now, he made profits of $105 million doing all that, but federal prosecutors apparently were fed up and charged him with 64 crimes, including racketeering and trading with the enemy, causing him in 1983 to flee to Switzerland. In 2001, one of his last acts in office, Bill Clinton pardoned Mark Rich, for which he took a lot of heat. Apparently his hand had been pushed by the Israeli Prime Minister, the King of Spain, and an ex-head of the Mossad. And also the fact that Mr. Rich's ex-wife, Denise, had given generously to the Clinton Library and Democratic campaigns. On a much happier note, we would uh, commemorate, I guess in our own way, the, the passing of, of a computer genius, a visionary, who invented things that we use every day. Noted his obituary in The Economist, Doug Engelbart, from the early 1950s, looked at computers in a way nobody else did. He saw a world in which everyone had instant access to information on small screens and could collaborate instantly to solve the increasingly complex problems the world faced. It was noted that almost no one else seemed to understand what he was thinking of. No corporation, not even Hewlett-Packard, saw the potential in digital computers back then. Colleagues at the Stanford Research Institute, where he went in 1957 as an engineer, told him to forget about it. So he, par- so he poked about largely alone. And it was noted that his boldest attempt to make fellow scientists see as he did came on January 9th in 1968, before an audience of about 1,000 people in San Francisco. Describing that event, the Week magazine said, Standing in a San Francisco conference hall filled with the nation's top computer experts, Engelbart unveiled the pioneering technologies his experimental research group had been pursuing for the past decade at the Stanford Research Institute. Engelbart demonstrated such innovations as word processing, video conferencing, also desktop windows. This is 13 years before the debut of the first IBM personal computer. He also showed how a mouse, which he invented four years ago, could be used to control a computer. Writing about that, fellow Stanford engineer William English said, people were amazed. In one hour, 
He defined the era of modern computing. His obits also noted that with the user in mind, his research team developed much of the technology that now underpins the internet, including hypertext, which links digital files. But turns out his most famous invention was the mouse. After he built an $80,000 monitor, Engelbart figured he needed a device to interact with the screen. And working with fellow engineer, William English, he came up with a thick wooden block that rolled around on a desktop on metal wheels and connected to the computer via a cord. The device's official name was the XY position indicator for the display system. But his lab called it the mouse, and that's what stuck. And we must also take a minute to... Uh, to respectfully note the passing of a great journalist, White House reporter Helen Thomas, who died last week at age 92. She covered 10 presidents over five decades, and as she aged into a legend, Thomas was the only reporter with her name inscribed on a chair in the White House briefing room. The obits noted that she made a name as a bulldog for United Press International and the great wire service rivalries of old, and also as a pioneer for women in journalism. It's noted that she was persistent to the point of badgering. One White House press secretary described her questioning as torture, and he was one of her fans. The obits noted that in her later years, her refusal to conceal her strong opinions, even when posing questions to a president, and her public hostility toward Israel caused discomfort among colleagues. It's noted that Thomas was accustomed to getting under the skin of presidents, if not getting the cold shoulder. She said years later, if you want to be loved, go into something else. The obits note that Thomas was at the forefront of women's achievements in journalism. She was one of the first female reporters to break out of the White House's woman beat, you know, with the soft stories about presidents' kids, wives, their teas, and their hairdos, and instead cover the hard news on an equal footing with men. She became the first female White House bureau chief for a wire service when UPI named her to the position in 1974. She was also the first female officer at the National Press Club, where women had once been banned as members. And she had to fight for admission into the 1958 luncheon speech where Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev warned, we will bury you. Turned out that Khrushchev was an unlikely ally for Thomas. In one sense, he'd refused to speak at any Washington venue that excluded women. Thomas fought also for a more open presidency, resisting all moves by a succession of administrations to restrict press access. Born in Winchester, Kentucky to Lebanese immigrants, Thomas was the seventh of nine children. After graduating from Detroit's Wayne University, now Wayne State University, she headed straight for the nation's capital and landed a $17 a week job as a copy girl with duties that included fetching coffee and donuts for editors at the Washington Daily News. United Press, later UPI, hired her to write local stories for the Radio Wire. Her assignments were relegated to first to women's news, society items, and celebrity profiles. But a break came in 1960 when she got sent to Palm Beach, Florida to cover the Kennedy family vacation. Bigger and better assignments would follow. Thomas's career in the White House came to an end about three years ago when she told a rabbi making a video that Israeli Jews should get the hell out of Palestine and go home to Germany, Poland, or the United States. The video circulated on the internet and brought widespread criticism of Thomas, which forced her to quit her job as a Hearst columnist. But months later, she started a column for a free weekly paper in a Washington suburb and continued to work up until last year. 
said President Obama, what made Helen the dean of the White House press corps was not just the length of her tenure, but her fierce belief that our democracy works best when we ask tough questions and hold our leaders to account. Frankly, we wish Helen Thomas was still there to hold Barack Obama to account, but uh, that's another story. I want to close with the fact that a self-described liberal, Helen Thomas, made no secret of her ill feelings for George W. Bush. She told the Daily Breeze of Torrance, California, he's the worst president in all of American history, which did earn her a bit of a cold shoulder in the Bush White House from that point forward. Anyway, she was a great lady. We're sorry she's gone. Helen Thomas. All right, in the couple minutes I have left, I wanted to address some cracks about uh, Bob Dylan and other things by the legendary Donald Fagan. To quote from the current Rolling Stone with the so-called controversial uh, bomber photo on the front, the checking in column addressed Mr. Fagan, the front man of Steely Dan, and pointed out they have 53 shows scheduled this summer some which will feature complete performances of classic albums like The Royal Scam, Asia, and Gaucho. Fagan said, we definitely won't do Can't Buy a Thrill. Uh, We made that thing before our style gelled. Fagan went on to say that uh, Walter Becker and I aren't fond of Ricky Don't Lose That Number. It's not a bad song. I think it's, quote, well-written, unquote, but it's so simple. I just have listening fatigue. It's been played too much. Same with Reeling in the Years. Asked about their baby boomer fans, Fagan said, People my age aren't that interested in music, period. They're much more interested in sports or the fact that their knee hurts. That's perfectly valid. I'm very interested in the fact that my knee hurts. We're playing county fairs now. It's hard to tell these geriatric people apart from farm animals sometimes. Asked about Bob Dylan, Fagan said, I've been to Dylan's shows where I just walked out in the middle. He has about a dozen minor key drone tunes with three chords. I find it very tedious. He actually has songs that are more boring than some early Appalachian songs. It's amazing. He has songs with 512 verses and almost no melody. I think a psychiatrist would be more useful than a throat doctor at this point. A remark which I must say pleases me greatly. I would note for the interest of the listener that Mr. McMillan is scowling. And if he would seize the mic, would add that he wouldn't buy a Steely Dan album if he just to put coffee on it. But in Rolling Stone, the same edition... On the page before the talk with Donald Fagan, there's a little blurb on Bob Dylan, which notes that another four-disc set called Another Self-Portrait is due. This same piece opens with the comment that critic Griel Marcus spoke for countless Dylan fans when he began his Rolling Stone review of 1970s Self-Portrait with the now-famous question, What is this crap? They went on to note the two-LP set was a bizarre mishmash of pop covers pre-rock hits, and poorly recorded live cuts from Dylan's 1969 set on the Isle of Wight Festival, adding that nearly every tune was overloaded with weird backup chords, strings, and horns. Said Marcus today of his Rolling Stone review, I knew that opening was provocative, but that's what everyone in the country was saying, and I had to reflect that. So great, decades later, Dylan's doing it again with a four-LP set along the same lines. Woo! Well, anyway, some people like Bob Dylan, some people like Steely Dan. But we, regardless, are out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to our aviation correspondent, Vladimir Zarevika, for his salty remarks. And insights, of course. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. You got some Steely Dan queued up, Mr. McMillan? Unfortunately.